Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Institute for Research on Women, Gender, and Sexuality, the Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of English and Comparative Literature Jack Halberstam's book, Trans Asterisk, a quick and quirky account of gender variance. First, I'll bring you Jack's comments from the panel about the book, and later, we'll hear my interview with Che Gossett, archivist at the Barnard Center for Research on Women and a PhD candidate in transgender studies at Rutgers. All right, so we have weathered many storms here already. Uh, thank you so much to everybody for being here. Thank you to the panelists. This is uh, incredibly um, lovely. You know, uh, it's this was just supposed to be literally a quick little book, and um, I feel that it landed in circulation at a time when things are actually really fraught in relationship to transgender identity. And it, it's a really, really important moment to think about who we've been, as Kate was remarking, what the solidarities might be across a whole range of different bodily identifications, um, and what the future of um, trans discourse should be in this, this particular moment of crisis that we're in. And the book can obviously answer all of those to all of those uh, demands and agendas, but it is a little book that tries to make an intervention, and it does so with a few different polemical uh, moves. So what I'm gonna do is just tell you about the, the what, the why, the how. I'll give you a little taste of the book by doing a reading of one particular anecdote from the book, which is a personal uh, anecdote about my own transness, which is, as Kate said, has always been you know, uh, ambiguous in some way. Um, and then I'll just try to tell you what the touchstones of the book are so that we can actually have um, a larger conversation. Um, the book was commissioned by UC Press, uh, by Lisa Dugan and Curtis Maris decided within the American Studies Association that academics are always late to the party, that we're, we take a long time to write things, we're very worried about putting things out prematurely that might not seem properly cooked, that might seem stupid in some way, that might not make the intervention. The series asks that we take the risk of writing things conversation as it happens, as opposed to come to it later to gather up the opinions and make sense of them. So it's a book, it's a book series that asks you to write a book on a topic in a year. And it was the year that I moved here as well. So it's like, you know, I had Lisa Dugan, like every day would be, you know, another email, what Try on. These are not great conditions under which to write a book that you hope makes some kind of intervention. Um, and I have to say that for all of her pushing, uh, Lisa Dugan was a perfect editor and she made me rewrite this book three or four times. Um, and I still don't think it's what it should be. Um, but there is a coherent argument in it, given the time constraints, only because of her um, editing. So this is the kind of project that I'm super drawn to, making an, an intervention as it happens. Um, and so I said yes, uh, immediately regretted it, but moved forward because there was so much material in circulation at the time that I was writing. So what was that circulation? What was in circulation? Well, Obama had passed or encouraged people to pass these bathroom bills. Um, 
suggesting that trans people should be able to use whatever bathrooms they feel most fit uh, their gender expression. And it is still the matching of one's gender in the bathroom is a very perfect art. I personally still use the women's room, and I do so for aesthetic reasons. <laughs> I'm not going in there. Uh, and I love that there's a sign on the bathroom door saying, you should feel free to use the bathroom that is most consistent with your gender expression. I do not. Um, and that's for other reasons. But we have managed to get gender-neutral bathrooms set up, which I now notice everybody uses. So that's interesting. Maybe we all just want single-stall bathrooms. Um, but those bathroom bills basically set off a national conversation on transgenderism that had been simmering below the surface of all kinds of debates, but was not in place before that. And this coincided with the reality show that Kate has appeared on, uh, I am Caitlin, the Caitlin Jen show, and we always ask uh, Kate to talk, thank God for Kate on that show was my feeling, but Kate has a different experience of it, which was very, very positive. But that show brought issues around transgenderism through whatever platform into, you know, households that maybe wouldn't have been having any particular conversation about transgenderism before that. So those two things uh, happened. The, the you know, year was declared, the transgender tipping point, there were people like Roberta Cox suddenly very publicly out there as trans women, trans men less so, less publicly given um, a platform, and it was clearly time to talk about transgenderism. The problem with the Caitlyn Jenner moment is that it acts as if Caitlyn Jenner arrives and suddenly there's a hero. Uh, for transgender issues, ignoring that people like Kate Weinstein have been doing uh, outreach, education, pedagogy around transgender issues for going on 30 years. You know, this is the very end point of an activism that was mistaken as the beginning. Um, so that's part of what trans tries to tell us about by giving a capsule account of this movement from the 1940s that might first have seen people recognizably doing something like changing their sex to the current condition where you, some people, can get sex reassignment surgeries on their health insurance, right? This is a very, you know, uh, very dif different and uh, very different set of circumstances uh, that allow people to get some kinds of sex reassignment surgeries in the 40s to the way in which uh, reassignment surgeries happen now. That was the condition, the sort of, you know, why now? The way I wrote the book, however, was conditioned by my early training in transgender studies, where back in the 1990s, um, you, you know, many people won't remember this, but the way that people came into contact with trans people was on talk shows. And I, I knew so many people who went on talk shows um, as kind of, you know, latter day uh, freaks. That was the point, right? You. You went on Jerry Springer, and they're like, meet some of you who have been having four children as a man, and now his mother to his children, and the pronouns were all wrong. And these, these were the contexts within which people talked about transgenderism. In the academy, people who wrote about trans people were often anthropologists or people writing about medicine who didn't know any trans people, um, and never talked to any trans people and who were not trans. So it was even a book, a very important book by Bernice Hausman, 
which was an analysis of transgender memoirs, in which she said that she had read so many transgender memoirs over the course of researching her book, that she was afraid that the child she was carrying, she was carrying this at the time, and what might come out come after did it. That was in the intro to a scholarly book on transgenderism, um, in which she argued that transgender people made up medical conditions for themselves in order to get surgery, as if this was some sort of terrible thing to do when people, you know, actually deeply, desperately wanted medical intervention and had to make up any kind of story that the doctor wanted. And Sandy Stone, uh, in the uh, Trans Empire Strikes Back, tells a hilarious anecdote of going to the uh, Stanford Gender Clinic where she was being trying to get hormones from the, from the doctors. And she went in jeans and a t-shirt. And the, the doctor at the Stanford Clinic said, you know, um, Sandy, that we men that trans women appear as women and dress as women and live as women in order for us to give you the hormones that you want. Do you understand that? And she said, I don't know, honey, what have you been outside recently, but women wear jeans. <laughs> so, you know, so that we're, we're, in, uh, we're in a different moment. So, because I don't seem to pass as a man, and I don't live my life simply as a man, I use personal anecdote in the book to try to understand, make sense of, and give body to, the body that is my own body, not someone else's, to the experience of gender ambiguity that I have chosen not to resolve through hormones, okay? And, and honestly, that's how you resolve it if you're looking to pass as a man. Taking testosterone can very, very quickly allow you to pass as a man. A little bit of facial hair and a deeper voice is just about all that you need. And trans men pass very, very easily, very, very quickly. So I've chosen not to do that. However, and this is the little piece that I want to read for you, uh, just um, a year and a bit ago, I did decide to have top surgery. So, and that maybe that's a weird decision, uh, but it wasn't for me, and I was speaking to uh, another sort of trans asterisk person, a very well-known person in gender studies actually recently, and they said that when they read the book, they were also like, yes, I want that but for all kinds of reasons, still feel that they can't do that. So this was a big move for me, and it happened as I was writing the book. So I want to tell you about it, I want to read to you this little section. You can see how I try not to tell the story of trans by simply pulling other people's bodies out and placing them in the foreground, but saying, okay, let me be the person who's exposed here, um, and let's use my example to make sense of it. Heeding the call from the 90s that we theorize our own experience of relationships transgenderism, not make trans people who are, have been spectacularly and publicly out there, uh, either passing or not, as trans men or women, into a sort of avatar for the claims that people want to make about trans or queer studies. Okay, so I'll do that and then I'll just give you five basic understandings of the intervention of the book. So this is from chapter two that really Janet was talking about, about the construction of a trans reality as another kind of reality of the phenomenological experience of being in the body. It's called making trans asterisk bodies. So in 2016, at the grand old age of 54, having lived in my boyish female body for over half a century, I made a big decision. I wanted top surgery. 
nearly 100 years ago when British medical um, researcher uh, Michael Dillon, 100 years ago, that has to be wrong. No. <laughs> okay, I'm not good at historian. That's already wrong. This must have been in the 30s, so, okay. Nearly 100 years ago, when British medical researcher Michael Dillon had what was probably the first top surgery, he did so almost by accident. And he was a, a young uh, person, born female, living in England at the beginning of the 20th century, trained as a doctor, got access to early distillations of testosterone, injected himself with testosterone, realized that it had an immediate effect on his body, um, and therefore became one of the first people who we could call uh, transgender. He then tracked down the one transgender woman he heard of through the press in the 1930s, woman called Roberta and suggested that they have a relationship because no one would ever want to get involved with either one of them and therefore they should hook up. And she's like, honey, I have people who want to get involved. <laughs> she's like, no thank you. And interestingly, giving Kate's account today, Michael Dillon, he transitioned and he went off to live as a Buddhist monk. Um, it didn't end well. He, he starved in India uh, and died there. Anyway, almost by accident, he was in uh, a hospital after getting uh, an, an emergency appendicitis operation. And he heard that a plastic surgeon was in residence at the hospital. Plastic surgeons in the 1930s were a rarity and they were still regarded as quacks, but they were there because of World War I and all the plastic surgery that soldiers needed post World War I. Dylan leaped to the chance that Kate had thrown his way and asked the surgeon to give him a double mastectomy. Nowadays, plastic surgeons court transgender patients, and some transgender people can get most or all of their procedures paid for through medical insurance. I called to make my appointment with a surgeon recommended by a friend whose chest I had seen, and I thought it was pretty great, so I went with this guy. This, the doctor was Dr. Lee, and he did not specialize in transgender medicine, but once a month, he did a top surgery um, uh, operation. He was known to be very good at what he did. He was an excellent plastic surgeon rather than someone who just catered to trans people. His receptionist asked what kind of procedure I wanted. I paused. Top surgery, I said. She didn't miss a beat. No problem, honey, she answered. I'll need your birth name, and then later after surgery, we'll call you by your chosen name. So the clinic was bustling with women when I arrived. Butt implants were the flavor of the month, but the women who checked me in said that breast enhancement was a bread and butter operation at the time. Uh, top surgeries, though not uncommon, were not the everyday fare, but the nurses kept telling me, we love our transgender patients. We love our transgender patients. Finally, I asked one of them, I said, why do you love your transgender patients? They're so happy. Whereas a lot of women who get butt implants, breast enlargements, breast reductions, complain about how painful it is. And she said, no chance people come back complaining about the pain, they don't care. Um, and are not happy. It's, it's not exactly what they want. So they knew that the trans people coming in are going to leave happy. And that apparently was not the everyday experience. Um, Dr. Lee apologized for having to ask me for a note from a therapist that would confirm that I had suffered from and still suffer from gender dysphoria. I needed the surgery for psychological reasons. That was fine with me. He also said he wished that some of his other patients, young women, who wanted breast enlargements would speak to a therapist before coming in 
and making drastic changes to the bodies that had not yet finished growing. So I already liked this guy, right? He seemed like he was thinking along the right lines. So the day of my surgery arrived, and it was in a, in a private uh, facility. Um, I arrived there. Other transgender people like J.R. Latham, who I discussed um, in the book, have reported being subjected to scorn from the medical staff they encounter for this operation. There's nothing worse than being judged by people who are about to work on your body as you are under anesthesia. Think about that. This is what trans people have had to put up with. I experienced none of this. The women who cared for me were kind and understanding and non-judgmental. One of you told me that I reminded her of the daughter, which was interesting. Um, and then when I tried to explain her daughter was queer in some way, I think mean, it was, it was uh, you know, surreal. Um, but they were, they were not judgmental, although they did ask me to bring them a urine sample to make sure I wasn't pregnant. And I was like, I, I cannot express how ironic uh, this is that you would, if I was pregnant, this would be such a miracle that we have other medical for fish to fry. Okay? So, um, Dr. Lee was calm and reassuring. As they were practicing surgery, I said to him, why did you become a plastic surgeon? He said, I always wanted to be an architect. And plastic surgery allows me to build structures out of flesh. Now, other people might have been worked out by this. <laughs> I was delighted. And I was just like, you're my guy. You're just my guy. It raised my confidence in his abilities. He wasn't trying to please me with the narrative that he thought I wanted. Um, and uh, I thought that he understood what I wanted in my uh, body. Together we were building something in flesh, changing the architecture of my body forever. The procedure was not about building maleness into my body, it was about editing some part of the femaleness out that currently defined me. I didn't think that I would awake as a new self, only that some of my bodily contours would shift in ways that gave me a different bodily abode. And lots of people in transgender studies now are using architecture as the paradigm for thinking about being in the body. Instead of journeys, transitions, right? Instead of homes, being at home, instead of borders that are being crossed, architecture to recognize that we build structures into the flesh and that we inhabit them. And that as uh, um, Lucas Crawford says, we might want to think about the body as a series of stopovers in which we experience the process of life. My surgery was one such stopover. My body is one such archive. So that gives you a sense of the, you know, the fact that I, I, I would rather put my body out there with all of its weird ambiguities. I think talking now about what it means to be in a changing room, um, how I do or do not pass, I thought, oh my god, I'll have top surgery, now I'll pass. I'm seen exactly the same way. Probably only I know that this difference is that my clothes feel different, the things that I'm able to shop for do in sports, all of those things are like for me infinitely changed. Um, and and this has made a massive difference to me, but it doesn't change how people necessarily um, perceive me. Um, so this is where, as Janet is saying, the, the surgery is there not as a sex change. And this is one point that I, one of the points that I really want to make. There is no such thing as sex change. People don't get sex changes. You there is no magic bullet. There is no surgery that magically transforms somebody from male to female or female to male. There are surgeries you can have 
there are hormone therapies you can take, and there are different ways that you can change the way your body is received in the world. This fantasy of sex change is a cisgendered fantasy that wants to restore order to a system that is deeply destabilized by the appearance of time of multiple variant uh, bodies within uh, the pelvic realm. And therefore, J.R. Latham's work, he's an Australian uh, graduate student actually, who wrote a beautiful ethnography on trans surgeries, which almost never studied. And his point is that these reshapings of the body change the meaning of reality. So to the extent that bodily architectures have shifted and changed, people are interacting very differently with each other, then reality is different as a consequence of the pressure that trans people place upon the experience of living in a body. You see, so the experience of being a cisgendered woman changes when there are lots of trans men or gender ambiguous men in the world because you might be attracted to somebody who doesn't come in a body that is conventionally um, sexed as male. So suddenly your heterosexual desire has to be understood differently. It flows through space and time and across bodily surfaces in completely different ways. So that's what we mean by what he calls trans realities. So that's one point that the uh, book makes. When it comes to bodily surgeries, which were the topic of all of those uh, talk shows, remember, everyone wanted to know, well, do, you, do you now have a work called clitoris slash penis? Can you have an orgasm? What can it do? What can it not do? This is a statistic for you. 20, only 25% of all trans people get bottom surgeries. Bottom surgeries are painful. They don't always work. Um, they are not one surgery, but multiple surgeries. Um, and for many people, they've figured out how to make the equipment they have work. Okay, so this fantasy of sex change, I'm hoping that the book is trying to put an end to, that fantasy that there is such a thing. And that's what allows us to think about trans with the asterisks as a continuum within which there are a whole variety of genders being expressed across the population. Um, the other thing to say about this, and this is the second point that I'll make, and Kate touched on this, is that naming is actually a very important practice, whether you're talking about colonial projects of naming, whether you're talking about a racialized project of naming, but you're talking about a medicalized project of naming. Naming is power. So it's very, been very important over the last decade or so that trans people name ourselves. And that's why those fights over the term tranny, which engulfed queer communities about two years ago, was so damaging, because as Kate said, terms like trans uh, like tranny, have a long history. They have a history that runs through sex work, uh, as Vermont historian shows. They have a history that runs through communities of color. They have a history that runs through nightclubs. And there was a San Francisco club called Tranny Shack, and the demand was made that Tranny Shack stop being called Tranny Shack and be called T Shack. You shouldn't really tell a young person living in town what, what's on this planet here. What's, what are we doing here, right? I don't want to go to T Shack. I want to go to Tranny Shack. But this created a massive, this debate created a massive generational split that my book also wanted to address to just saying, you know, pronoun, preferred gender pronoun didn't come into the world with this last generation. We have pondered uh, uh, pronouns, we have pondered terminologies, we have pushed back on medical terminologies and pushed forward on vernacular terminologies for a long time. So for example, in black queer communities, 
butch and trans maybe, but more studs and aggressives. Okay, and aggressives, weirdly, is a word shared by black communities and Latino communities, but not white trans communities. Very few white trans people call themselves aggressives. Black trans people, there's a film called The Aggressives that addresses this, take up this terminology partly because many people pass through the prison system in which the aggressive is a sexualized role within a prison system of intimacy, sex, and exchange. And that film uh, investigates the way in which the term aggressive makes its way through um, black queer communities. And it's a completely different history than the history of coming to manhood that was told in white trans films in the 1990s ad nauseum. There was one more trans, one more LGBT film festival with becoming a man, my manhood, you know, and that investment in manhood, I would almost argue, is white. It's a white investment in manhood that contains certain privileges that people now have access to that is not available at all in racialized communities. So those other vocabularies feel deeply important and must not be lost in the move to edit out this word or that word. We actually need to hold on to words and hold on to histories. So that's uh, the second point. Third point, and this is the controversial piece in the book, I think. I argue in the book that we are too quick to um, allow for interventions into the lives of trans children. Too quick. Um, as Tay Meadows' work, Tay is in sociology here at Columbia and has a book coming out on the parents of transgender uh, children. Tay argues that this is the first time in history that children have called themselves trans. And it's a large number of kids who call themselves trans or gender fluid or gender variant or something or non-binary, a lot of kids. And a lot of helicopter parents over the last 10 years have swooped in on their gender variant children and said, okay, don't worry here, we'll take care of this. And so a lot of the bathroom debates you've seen are in schools, right, when parents swoop in and say, let's get a bathroom stall that's good for my, my little person. Um, and, and then puberty uh, blocking drugs, followed by um, hormones, followed by surgery. Now, you know, I, I was at a party the other day where somebody said to me, I said, oh, what a cute little girl, um, what, what's your daughter's name? And she said, well, this week it's Cindy, and last week it was John, and last week uh, John said that he was a boy, and this week Cindy says that she realizes that one day she'll be a mommy, and so she's a girl. And the mom was not at all faced and was happy with this narrative and has gone from John to Cindy. Uh, and that actually does happen in a world where gender dynamics are loosened up. Kids may well express a wide range of gender identification. But we're rushing in with this um, intervention, and I'm not sure we should be. So I argue in the book that a lot of kids are finding out about stuff online from YouTube. They see someone transitioning on a YouTube that takes 20 minutes, but it's actually covering nine, 10 months, and they think it's a simple thing to do, and they ask their parents for it. I make an argument in the middle section of the book that means stop, hold off, think about what it means to grow into a body, experience sexual desire in that body, and then think about what kinds of interventions might be made. And I'm not saying that young people shouldn't have access to hormones if they want that. I'm saying that 
that has to be a decision made by a child later on, not a decision imposed by a parent who wants to deliver that child to a normative adulthood as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, I, I have uh, lots of readings of new films, and the film that for me is most interesting in terms of taking up a, the possibility of a trans-asterisk spectrum is Tangerine. Uh, beautiful, beautiful film um, that I think breaks a lot of boundaries because it doesn't represent the transgender experience as singular, as a singular white heroic figure against the world who comes to know themselves and then, um, you know, blossoms, metamorphizes, becomes a woman. First of all, there are two protagonists and they are friends. And the friendship between the trans women is the story of the film. Well, that and then kidnapping a white woman, that's also the story of the film. Uh, it's very humorous, it's very funny, it's about their aspirations, which are small, which are do not amount, nobody gets a breakthrough, no one gets a break, actually. Um, and the film is about their experience as transgender sex workers of color without trying to redeem them, without trying to make any apology, um, and with a representation of the indignities, the small triumphs, uh, and the struggles that make up those lives. It was shot on an iPhone 5, and I think that's deeply significant, but it was shot on a small screen to capture the small pieces of the life, rather than the grand, heroic, triumphal process. Finally, my last point, uh, that maybe you know will offer some areas of discussion. At the end of the book, I really try to make an intervention. This piece has been put up recently at Boston Review into a standoff that is long-standing between feminism and transgenderism. And this goes back to the Michigan Women's Music Festival and other battlegrounds where radical feminism has been seen as anti-trans. And I am trying to say. Let's get over this. Uh, number one, a few radical, white radical feminists like Janice Raymond were anti-trans. That was one book in 1971. It is not a big popular book now. Who cares about it? No one's reading it. Um, we need to let it go, okay? So that, that's one thing. Um, second, trans-focused feminists are, are not and were not a majority. How do I know that? I went back and I read a bunch of magazines and journals and uh, pamphlets from the 1970s, feminist um, uh, zines. They're beautiful archive of the USC One archive. And they are filled with information and narratives about trans people. Filled, but not judgmental, not like, can you believe it, that the trans people are coming. But, okay, <laughs> let's think about this as feminists what we want to make of the fact that many lesbians are transitioning to men and many trans women are identifying as feminists. And there were debates and we should look at those debates rather than being focused on TERPs, you know, these few annoying, uh, hateful people who do not speak, for the most part, for a large group of women. Finally, on that, on that point, we could be looking at gay male communities and thinking about how they can be very transphobic. There isn't a huge welcome mat laid out to trans men who are gay identified, uh, whereas lots of lesbian communities have been very interested in trans women who identify as lesbian. Um, so why are we not investigating transphobia in gay male communities that have reinvested in masculinity, are quite uh, critical of gay male femininities, 
and not particularly excited about trans men uh, in their midst. That would be another place to go. But beyond that, this is not the time for internecine squabbles between trans people and feminists. This is a time for a much larger solidarity, a much bigger uh, movement, um, and uh, you know, much more capacious political imaginaries. And the hope of the book is that trans asterisks can be part of that. Now, we'll hear my interview with Che Gossett, archivist at the Barnard Center for Research on Women and a PhD candidate in transgender studies at Rutgers. I'm here with Che Gossett, who's an archivist at Barnard Center for Research on Women and also a PhD student at Rutgers in trans and gender studies. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I guess I'd like to start by talking about the relationship between dance and choreography that you brought up on the panel. Um, as you were talking about the nexus of the body, uh, aesthetic practice, and also the political. So could you talk about dance and how all of these concepts are located within it? Yeah, I mean, um, I think on the panel I talked about kind of like political choreography, mm-hmm. which is a concept that um, Andre Lepecki kind of mobilizes in his own work, um, and which also refers back to um, uh, Alvizier, um, and so I think in thinking of gender um, as ritual, um, a la Butler, um, we can also think, you know, in that sense of the performative, um, the politics of gender as political chore- choreography. Cool. Um, so I think that's what I was trying to, to index. Okay. Um, yeah, and movements as radical performance. Okay, could you talk a little bit more about that and sort of, I mean, if you would like to, I don't want to ask you to draw on examples from your own life if you don't want to, but maybe sort of things that you see more broadly, if, if that mm-hmm. is better. Yeah, um, I mean, I think uh, one thing that I can think about is art okay. and kind of like um, embodied performance um, or how performance troubles the notion of uh, kind of bodily integrity mm-hmm. or possession or individuation, mm-hmm. the, you know, what it means to assume a body um, and to assume a, a gender. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, interesting work um, that I've come across recently uh, by uh, an, a trans um, Mexican artist, uh, Sir Surpas, um, who is a um, visual artist who has work kind of like with found materials and mm-hmm. kind of like rescued objects mm-hmm. and has a, a show up uh, at a, in a gallery right now um, that's actually in Miami, but I've seen pictures and I want to actually see it in person. <laughs> yeah. um, and one of the objects is like a couch that she um, like lit on fire um, with um, estrid- estradiol-laced like fuel. Oh. And it's kind to, you know, trying to think like gender in an apocalyptic sense. I see. Or like perhaps maybe like how does trans... Um, like, figure as an apocalypse for gender itself um, would be a way that I would think about it because it's called The End, the exhibit. It's, like, thinking after the end of the world. So almost, like, trans as gender in ruins. And that kind of relates to, like, you know, one of the intriguing things that about um, Jack's text, which is, like, Mm -hmm. you know, a moving... I'm interested in, like, moving away from, like, trans as a almost, like, um, codified like, knowable, mm-hmm. transparent um, 
object, whether that's like an object of, of study or an object of struggle, mm-hmm. like thinking about like, you know, how do we move from what trans is as a fixed thing in our kind of time of trans visibility mm-hmm. to like what trans does. So what does trans do to gender, do to like help us rethink um, the world, basically. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, um, yeah, Jack's text is like um, bringing together so many different, it's like really interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is like a way, a means through which we can think trans in a super capacious way. I see. Yeah, there was some um, talk at the panel about mm-hmm. the word trans as a mm-hmm. noun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm interested in, in yeah. as a verb, basically. Okay, yeah. that, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you, can you draw, or would you want to draw on the history of trans as a noun to mm-hmm. move to a use of the word as a verb, which I, I think is a fascinating concept. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I feel like there's a lot of, um, I feel like trans studies and trans theory, like trans theory itself, right? So like thinking of trans as alive, right? And mm-hmm. like doing things. Um, uh, the way that it moves, like its choreography, like its politics. So I think that's that's all like means through which to do, to do that, you know? Because mm-hmm. um, there's another book that came out, an anthology called Trapdoor, mm-hmm. that's about trans cultural production in the time of trans visibility. And it's an anthology, it's... Um, it's Johanna Burton at the New Museum and, and Raina Gossett, my sister. And oh, cool. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> Her work is amazing. It's uh, <laughs> like really influential for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eric Stanley, who is one of the uh, editors of the, another text called Captive Genders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really taking artists and academics, well, really like people theorizing, whether it's visually theorizing or like, you know, in the conventional academic sense too. And, mm-hmm. um Activists like Miss Major, who's an older Black trans activist, um, who's been doing work for many, many years. So thinking collectively um, about problematizing, like almost like the violence of trans visibility. So okay. we're at a time wherein trans is much more presumably knowable. Mm-hmm. Like we even have discourse about like um, you know what it means to be cis, right? Like. Right. Um, and so this book and, and people in it are thinking about, like, what's the violence that's the underside or the condition of possibility for something like trans visibility. So there may be more figures that are more visible, and that's, like, really important in terms of symbolic, um, I don't know, symbolic, changing the symbolic realm, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, um, but uh, it, it hasn't uh, transferred over into, like, material changes in material conditions and, and like, um, mm-hmm. those most impacted by racialization and, and transphobia, mm-hmm. their lives. Right. So this, you know, this is kind of, like, the the reason for this book, this intervention. Um, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I like the connections that you made between the sort of cultural and the academic because I think often we get stuck... In as academics, we get stuck in this sort of world of ideas and symbols, and um, I think that you know the importance of mm-hmm. actually the work that you're doing is looking out to make a material difference on people's lives. Um, and this question of art, I wonder. Um, I'm a medievalist, and I work on love poetry from the 12th and 13th centuries, and um, 
I've come across some poems where the poem itself is personified, and this mm-hmm. continues into Dante and Petrarch and the still mm-hmm. novice and stuff. Um, and then some poems where the gender of language is being played with. So I wonder, um, as someone who often <laughs> is sort of like concerned about the applicability of mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about to the material world, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's an avenue there or for those who work in art and are interested in this to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I wonder like, if you could speak just a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, well, uh, I think like, I, I guess I would think of it like two, two ways. Mm-hmm. Like, one is that um, like, there's definitely trans artists that are, are making work right now. Right. And I think of that as theorizing. Yeah. Um, you, you know, um, there's a, a movie called Criminal Queers that's Eric Stanley and Chris Vargas. There's my sister Raina's work right. that's forthcoming, a, a, a film called Happy Birthday, Marsha, cool. that is making actually, like, I would say um, both of those make two different really amazing interventions. Yeah. The first one, the film Criminal Queers, I right. feel like... Um, creates like a like an aesthetic sociality mm-hmm. that is also an abolitionist sociality. I see. Um, in the process of doing making the film and, and like what it dramatizes. Mm-hmm. And then so that's criminal queers. And then Happy Birthday Marsha like has a all trans cast. Wow. And, you know, one of the spheres of the violence of visibility has been the invisibility of trans people in film during the same time that like, you know, trans is achieve some kind of celebrity mm-hmm. status that is probably ephemeral, you know? So, right. Um, but it's important to sabotage it, which people are mm-hmm. in really amazing ways. Mm-hmm. You know, Laverne Cox and J- Janet Mock are doing so much pedagogical right. work, like on a national scale, mm-hmm. um, and a mediatized mm-hmm. scale that's phenomenal. Yes. Um, so people are using the moment um, and harnessing it Good. Um, and redirecting it. Yeah. Um, but you know, this film, like that, you know, the, a typical trans film Mm -hmm. doesn't have trans people in it. So, um, from Danish girl to like really pretty much any, there's a whole kind of iconography of, um, either anti-trans or the trans is biography. Mm -hmm. So like a very teleological narrative about like, you know, what it means to be trapped in a different body and so right. this is why I think, you know, the work that's happening in trans aesthetics and trans art and trans film and trans theory and trans studies, mm-hmm. like, um, that intervention into, like, moving from, like, what uh, the kind of cis gaze, I guess you could say, like, right. feel, like sees as trans into, like, a space that, you know, we could call into mural mm-hmm. on, like, Hortense Fillers, like, that's about talking to each other or representing ourselves, you know, in ways that aren't really mappable or mm-hmm. that are opaque um, to the normative Hollywood right. like, viewership. So. Yeah, I love this uh, thinking of art as theorizing mm-hmm. something. Yeah, and I'm, you know, as <laughs> um, I'm thinking about how I can apply it to the stuff that I work on because I think it opens up, as you are saying, a whole new way of considering mm-hmm ways of being mm-hmm. and philo- philosophizing mm-hmm. the the relationship that one has to the mm-hmm. to one's body etc and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I find that fascinating so yeah I really like this reframing 
that you are speaking about. So um, maybe we can move with this idea, with this new sort of Mm -hmm. reframing, maybe we can talk now about and sort of, we've already been speaking about this a bit, but about the ways in which trans can decenter the category of the human. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you work on animism Mm -hmm. as part of your PhD work. And Mm -hmm. so as, as do I, Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. concepts of humanity and how the Mm -hmm. quote human unquote is defined. So, Mm -hmm. Um, and often this happens in relationship to animals. Mm-hmm. So could you expand on this idea of both the human categorization mm-hmm. and de- definition mm-hmm. and then also how your work and your work on animals mm-hmm. enters this decentralization? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, yeah. So um, I think uh, in terms of like um, black feminist thought and um, African-American archives and literature, like the canon, mm-hmm. um, like as shaky as that is, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. uh, I'm really, you know, a starting point for me has been the work of, of um, Hortense Spillers, who um, is a black feminist literary critic who um, has, you know, a whole kind of like, um, I don't know if she would call this, but I would say like an arsenal of like, really like, um, uh, kind of like watchwords or, or like concepts that she okay. has laid out that relate to um, the figure of the human as a racial um, onto epistemic category. Mm. Um, and other people have done the same. Uh, Sadia Hartman, um, in her work, Scenes as a Subjection, she mm. talks about um, the, the human really, and then Sylvia Winter has a notion called genre of man. She's a Caribbean um, philosopher and writer and thinker. Um, so, and she works with Fanon. Um, so each of these uh, academics, thinkers, have contributed, like, they don't, you know, I could talk for a podcast about each one. Right, right, of so, course. <laughs> but where it links up, like the nexus mm-hmm. or nodal point would be around, you know, um, so Sylvia Winter thinks about gender, she thinks about, she has an essay called Mama's um, Baby, Papa's Maybe, that was written in 87, that's like this really phenomenal um, piece to think with, where she thinks about blackness, um, which she calls the, the principal point of passage between the human and the non-human world. Okay. So I'm interested in like, how does blackness um, reconfigure and destabilize the primacy of the human with a capital H mm. and the animal um, binary. Um, she also talks about um, racial slavery and the kind of what she calls the, the zero degree of social conceptualization, which is the flesh and how you arrive you know, as a subject of, of an, a body, a person with a, like, who's part of an ethnic group. Mm. You're put into a, a laboratory of the slave ship Mm-hmm. And, you know, you come out on the other side and you're reduced to the flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the flesh is like this kind of um, not, you know, uh, less than human, subhuman, um, mm-hmm. imaginary um, that is linked to blackness via racial slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Sadia Hartman, her text is a, about 19th century 
archive and uh, archives the afterlife of slavery, and she argues that um, the slave is the kind of ground for the for the subjects the subject like within liberal humanist mm -hmm. thought. Okay. Um, and then Sylvia Winter writes about the genre of man, and so um, all these are ways of like deconstructing the the category of the human right. as always already anti-black and right. as colonial which you know Locke you, if you read any of the hmm. founding you know coordinates philosophical coordinates of, of about liberal humanism that's you know right. that's what what happened right so um, I think uh, it's also really interesting um, you know the category of flesh is one that extends uh, across like life, right? So like um, from animal to to all creatures, right? Um, uh, Sadia Hartman um, writes about the the human and subjection and sub subjectification, but also like personhood. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I'm I'm interested in how you know there's almost like a conceptual archive through Black study that. Um, might be used as an optic through which to rethink the human and the animal binary. And, you know, how the genre of the human is also always the genre of the animal. And how black, um, black radicalism mm -hmm. responded not only to, you know, to dehumanization as bestialization um, and, and like so-called animalization. Right. Um, so Fanon is another huge figure for me in terms of how he thinks about, um, you know, uh, ontology being left by the wayside for the black. And, mm. um, so, uh, I guess, like, the the kind of, like, outcome of this is to think about abolition mm -hmm. as a political horizon, as um, what Du Bois would call the, the gift of black folk, and how abolition, um, so instead of getting, um, instead of only trying to figure out, like, conceptually or like schematically what is the relation between the black you know um, the human with the capital H and um, but also like how does abolition um, help us think of a means by which um, to address all forms of unfreedom hmm. and captivity so um, you know there's a discourse of animal rights that um, you know we can trace like to uh to the after so-called emancipation and that it's like white activists organizing and using this language of abolition but depoliticizing it and taking black people out of the equation hmm. and saying black people had their freedom which of course is a lie right. and it's still a lie mm -hmm. um, but and so now it's on to the animal who must be you know we must abolish all forms of animal captivity so hmm. I I'm interested in thinking about like repoliticizing abolition or how to um, so so that there's a trap of like depoliticizing it through that form, mm -hmm. but like you know thinking of it as a political horizon that emerges out of the Black Freedom Movement that extends open and it can hold up many other freedom struggles. Right. Um, so it provides us with a, a language um, and a framework to think about entanglement. Um, of human and non-human life, or um, uh, and to think about uh, racial capitalism, right. and maybe, but 
without doing it at the expense of uh, black life. Right. This figure of the human as a, not a black person and as a you know a colonial a colonialist mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, I think is fascinating when in my own work the definition of human is mm-hmm. is defined against an animal mm-hmm. and it's defined using rationality and speech sure, so yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so yeah. humans are rational yeah. animals right. are not yeah well that's um, yeah that's like Aristotle and, mm-hmm. but I think you know um, something that's that I'm trying to think about recently um is um, uh, Arendt, you know, yeah. in human condition, and um, I'm terrible with French names, so Jacques Ranciere? Runch- yeah, Ranciere. Yeah. Ranciere. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, great. So <laughs> he has a book called Disagreements, um, and, like, both he and Arendt pick this up, and I haven't seen it picked up many other places, but basically, in, like, uh, in, in the Republic... In, in that delineation of the human as a political animal with logos mm-hmm. and the non-human animal as without logos, the other being that was without logos was the slave. Yeah. And I think um, there's still that like kind of like schematic human right. animal slave. And I, you know, of course, and I guess one of the kind of like... Um, maybe, like, archaeological, genealogical, Foucault-type question would right. be, like, so what does blackness do to that relationship? I see. In modernity. Um, at, you know, because those, those still stick. Like, right. That, that like, um, tri- triad or whatever or hierarchy is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it morphs as blackness becomes coterminous or, like, almost like a metaphor for the... The slave becomes a metaphor for the black. Right. Um you know, with the, with the middle passage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, I just think it's interesting that in, like, kind of political philosophy of the animal, um, be it, like, Derrida, who, you know, is phenomenal, you know, Agamben, and, yeah. um, what you know, uh, there's a whole kind of lineage of people writing about this, that the figure of the slave um, sort of uh, disappears. Mm-hmm. So I'm, interested in, like, how do we put that front and center? Right. Make it a thing again. Yeah, and make the politics of the slave a thing again. Yeah. Like, not just animal, not only animal politics, but the politics of the slave. Because if we don't, because the politics of the slave give us an abolitionist politics. Right. Through which other forms of unfreedom can can become... I think. Struggles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like that. To I think that the idea of freedom, as you say, the, these words that we're familiar with are, have these incredibly mm-hmm. fraught histories. Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. idea of the human mm-hmm. means a very specific mm-hmm. thing based on Locke, as, as mm-hmm. you were saying, and others. And mm-hmm. then I like the idea of of using language today to talk about unfreedoms mm-hmm. because I think it um, it allows for such a much a much wider spectrum. Yeah, yeah, it's not like collapsing. Right. It's, yeah. Like saying this is this form of, of uh, captivity is the same thing as that form. Because that's the ruse, you know, what Frank Wilderson would call the ruse of analogy. So Right. Yeah. Right, yeah, and I think I think you're right that it is important and that it will open things up for mm-hmm. this spectrum mm-hmm. through which we can mm-hmm. 
through which we can understand or, or make mm-hmm. an intervention, as you were saying, mm-hmm. into what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for sure. for talking with me today and yeah. leaving me with quite a lot to think about mm-hmm. as, as it applies to my own work as yeah. well. But thank you again. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Jack Halberstam's book, Trans Asterisk, a quick and quirky account of gender variance. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Bernard Harcourt's book, The Counter-Revolution, how our government went to war against its own citizens. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.